Grace, peace, and mercy be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For those of you that were here last week, you hopefully spotted how this story continues right off the heels of last week's reading. In fact, if I thought ahead far enough, uh, I would have called this part two. Um, because truly, last week's passage and this week's passage are, are, are very linked, and the sermons are linked as well. And so, uh, in case you weren't here, or if you just want a refresher, uh, the point of last week's sermon on Acts chapter 4 uh, was that God is sovereign. He has authority. He's in control of everything, the entire world, and most especially, any government. Uh, and not only that, God laughs at the governments when they fancy themselves as higher than they are. And they can pass whatever laws or rules, and God laughs at them. Uh, and in the same vein, we as followers of God, as subjects of that kingdom, uh, and God is our king and we trust his authority, we don't have to worry about the things that are not under our dominion. We don't have to worry about what the governments do uh, because God has said, I got that covered. I'm God. I laugh. Uh, and then he tells us what we're supposed to do. Uh, and as we saw from Acts 4, what we're supposed to do is, is focus on being unified amongst the body of believers, uh, is preach one thing and one thing only, which is Christ and him resurrected, uh, and then show the fruit of that uh, by the way that we take care of each other and show our love to our neighbors, uh, and that those are the things God has said, that's what you're supposed to do. Don't worry about the government stuff, worry about this stuff I've actually asked you to do. And now this week, we see the consequence of what happens when Christians do what they're supposed to do. Uh, and, and so it, it builds right off of, the, it's basically the same story, uh, we just split it into two parts for the sake of uh, worship in the sermon series. So this morning, we pick up with uh, kind of the after effects, the consequences of what happens when apostles are unified, preaching Christ resurrected, and taking care of each, other's, uh, of each other. And what happens is uh, they get arrested, uh, which you know makes sense. Um, but what, what, it is funny, and, and I actually it ties in really well. As we talked about last week, you know, God laughs. I know it's the Bible, and we're not necessarily used to approaching it as anything. Oh, it's the Bible, you know. This is a funny story, right? I, I mean, I, I read this, and I just feel bad for the Sanhedrin, right? I mean, I mean, these poor guys, I mean, they think they're in charge, they're ruling Israel, and these pesky, uneducated fishermen are just giving them a dickens of a time. You know, so they already arrested them once in chapter 4 last week, uh, and so now they arrest them a second time, uh, throw them in jail, uh, uh, and, and, and why? Because they're jealous. I just love that. You're the ruling uh, leaders. You've got all the power and authority. You're jealous of these fishermen. Uh, so, okay, you're jealous. You throw them in jail. Uh, but, of course, God uh, decides to stymie them. And I love the way God does this particular miracle. I don't think there's any particular rhyme or reason. There's no theological thing behind it. But usually when God busts people out of jail, there's evidence you know, like, like, like gates are toppled, you know, roofs are, are, are tumbled down, uh, yeah, and it's like, you know, God sent an earthquake and busted this jail open. But I love that this one, for whatever reason, is a stealth jailbreak. Uh, there's, there's no evidence. Uh, the guards don't even know it happened. If you read ahead a little bit, uh, don't even know. You know and, and so God just kind of, you know, secretly uh, breaks them out of jail uh, and, and then tells them, go preach in the temple courts. And, and so here's where the, the comedy to me just, just cracks me up. They convene the Sanhedrin. You need to understand, this is not normal procedure. It's not just like it's a Wednesday, 
uh, right? Like this is, these apostles are driving us nuts. Uh, we got to deal with it. That's it. We are convening the big council. Uh, we, are, we are getting all the big honchos. Everyone with a white beard is getting in here now, and we're going to pass some judgment on these guys. So, I mean, I mean it, it, it's like when the Supreme Court gathers. I mean, they don't, the Supreme Court is not in session very often, and so when they are, as we know recently, it's a big deal when they are. You know, so this is a big deal. And so I, I just, I picture the scene. You know, they're all walking in, and all their pomp and circumstances, you know, their nicest uh, ceremonial robes with their tassels and, and those crazy headdresses that you saw in, like, A.D., the Bible continues, you know, and, and, and then they file in, and, and they sit down, and they're like, bring before us these apostles that we may pass judgment upon them. And they send the guard, and the guard, you know, goes, and you know, and, 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 then, and I picture, too, these poor men. And, and I feel bad for the, the guards at the cell. It's just a Tuesday for them, right? They just had the shift, you know. I mean, I mean it was just, you know, they maybe traded with somebody to, you know, to get the Sabbath off or whatever. And, uh, and, and they're standing there, and here comes the representative from the Sanhedrin going, you know, release the prisoners. And the guards, oh, yep, no problem, you know. Keys in the gate, you know, opens the door, and, you know. And, yeah, I, I, I mean, had no idea. It's not like the guard had any warning that there had been a jailbreak. You know, and so now the poor guard's getting dressed down. What happened? I don't know. I was, were you fell asleep? You know, like, were you one of the ones at the tomb fell asleep when Jesus fell, you know, came out too? You know, I, I, mean, I mean, getting yelled at. You know, then the representative's got to go back to the Sanhedrin. And he's got to be, guys, the, the, the door's locked. The guard's there. He says he wasn't sleeping. I, I, don't, I don't know where they are. I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, and, and, and now he's thinking, you know, we got all these bigwigs gathered together. You know, we already, you know, we already had some you know, a continental breakfast provided, and now, I mean, there's nothing here. Like, like the whole agenda for gathering all these people has been gone. Uh, and, and so, and, and I picture again, where, so they got the one guy coming in the door going, I don't know where they are, I'm sorry, I, I, you know, you want to break for lunch? You know, I mean, uh, uh, and then while they're, you know, they're puzzled, they don't know what's going on, and then from the other door comes in someone, hey, did any of you bother to look out the window? They're right there, they're preaching in the temple courts. And they look, and sure enough, there they are. And, and, and these poor, poor Sadducees and, and, and elders, they, they figure, well, you know, maybe third time's the charm for arresting them. You know, we've arrested them twice already, but you know what? Go arrest them again. Uh, and maybe this time, it'll stick. Uh, but then they, even, they, have to, they have to do it uh, politely. Like, did you guys catch that detail? Uh, I, I love, you know, they're, they're, the apostles are so popular which makes sense because they're healing people uh, and they're talking about how awesome Jesus is. Uh, and, and as we established last week, you know, they haven't gotten into, they're not preaching morality. They're just preaching the good news of Jesus. So they're very popular. And, and, and again, when, when you picture the last couple times, it's you, you know, jail, now, let's go. This time it's like, you know, kind sirs, we got the whole Sanhedrin together already. Uh, if you guys would just be kind enough to follow us in, I mean, we, we hate to waste the meeting space, you know, and, and the apostles, I mean, they're in control now. They're like, it's all right, peasants, we go willingly, and, and, and they, they, they go back with, you know, because they don't want, to, they don't want them getting stoned, and, and, you know, and so now here come the apostles, and right at this moment, uh, the scene is exactly what it was supposed to be, but it's all wrong, right? Uh, you know, it was supposed to be the Sanhedrin, the elders, are in charge, and here are you, uh, peon apostles, we're going to give you a dressing down, we're going to lecture you, we're going to send you on your way, we're in control, uh, and, and now it's completely reversed. You have the same scene, they're, they're still up in their chairs, the apostles are still down on the floor, but the apostles are in charge. And I read this next verse as very whiny from the chief priests. 
Didn't we tell you to stop preaching about Jesus? I'm pretty sure we told you to stop preaching about Jesus. Uh, I mean, do you guys mind? I mean, this is really messing up our, our, our order of the day here. And, and, and Peter, with, with absolute confidence, what do you want from me? Who, am I going to obey God or am I going to obey you? And picture, uh, you know, if, if I could just be uh, you know, blunt for a second, picture the, the chutzpah, if I may say, of a fisherman who for his entire life this has been his ruling council. And not like just a, a government that we don't necessarily like and oh, we'll vote the bums out next election, but like, I mean, that's, that's Rome. These are the Jews. These are the trained scribes and scholars, and these are the people who have been in power for Peter's entire life. So picture how crazy the situation has become that he's the one on trial standing there saying, am I going to listen to you? Am I going to listen to God? I feel like i got to go with God on this one. And, and, and it makes them so angry and just comically furious. Uh, and, and again, I love it because with, if we keep in mind last week, who has all the power? God, right? So if you're on God's side, you worried? No, you might die, but you're still not worried, right? Okay, I mean, P- Peter's, I mean, he knows what he is doing. I mean, he's not like, oh, maybe they'll let me off with a four points on my license. You know, like, like he knows exactly what is going to happen here, and yet confident. Is he angry? No. Is he worried? No. Who's angry? The Sanhedrin, the elders. They're livid, and, and they're so comically mad that they start talking about putting them to death. And I want to remind you, uh, if, if, you've, if you've watched any of the passion stories or any of that, the Sanhedrin's not allowed to put anyone to death, Right? You guys remember that? That's why it was so hard to kill Jesus. If you remember the passion story, they kept trying to kill Jesus and like, well, we can't do it. Maybe we can get Herod to kill Jesus. Herod's like, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. You know, all right, fine. Well, maybe we'll get Pontius Pilate to kill him. Well, you know, can I just release him? Let me just release him to you. No, 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 we don't want that one to kill him. And it took so much effort to kill because the Romans can kill people. Sanhedrin can't kill people. And yet they're so angry, they're about to try and put them to death right there on the spot. They would be in even bigger trouble uh, with Rome uh, for, for uh, exceeding their authority. I mean, and so this is just how ludicrous this has gotten. And these poor, poor elders. I, I do. I just feel bad. This was not how the morning was supposed to go. They were supposed to be in charge, confident. They were going to lecture some people and then go have lunch, and it was going to be a nice day. And now here they are, frothing at the mouth, so angry that they're almost going to break Roman law because they're so angry at Peter. All right? And in that moment, Gamaliel comes up, which, just as a side note, you're going to see a little more of this uh, in a month or so, uh, who is the wise teacher who taught Paul, who ends up becoming so important to the Christian faith. Uh, and, and so Gamaliel, who, who is probably not a believer, um, but he uh, says, hang on, guys, let's do a quick recess. Everybody go get some coffee. We're going to calm down for a minute. Send the apostles out. All right, and, and he says, men of Israel, you need to listen to me here. And he makes his case very well. He says, look, we know how this works. There's always rebellions. There's always going to be rebellions. And every time there's a rebellion, we do the same thing. We kill the guy leading it, and then we wait for nature to take its course. Because if it's just a man leading rebellion, you kill the man, everything else is going gonna, is gonna to fall apart on its own. We don't have to, we don't have to dirty our hands. We don't have to get you know, our blood pressure up. You know, We've killed Jesus already. Let's just wait for nature to take its course. And however... In case it wasn't just a man named Jesus, we need to be even more careful. 
Because if these guys are of human origin, if their purpose is of human origin, it's going to fail no matter what we do. But if it is from God, verse 39, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Pretty good point, Gamaliel. And so, with the perspective of 2,000 years of hindsight... I would ask for your opinion this morning. It, is the Sanhedrin fighting against man or in this story, or are they fighting against God? Anyone? Fighting against God. All right. That should have been a confident answer. Uh, yes, they're fighting against God, right? And how do we know? Well, because we're still talking about it 2,000 years later, right? If Gamaliel was right, this would have washed up. I mean, we wouldn't still be uh, you know, two millennia later, completely different hemisphere, completely different continent, culture, country, and yet we're still talking about this story. Pretty good evidence uh, that they're fighting against God in this case. All right, and, and so you see, uh, I think, how this ties in with last week and, and with chapter four, right? That at the end of the day, uh, are people against uh, you know, the Christian faith or against anything, are they fighting against us? No, because we're human beings, right? They're not fighting against man. They're fighting against God. And again, that is intended to be peaceful for you. That is intended to remove a burden that is not yours to carry. You know, do what you want. You're not fighting against me. You're fighting against the big guy. And he brings a lot uh, more firepower to this thing than I do. Okay? So they are fighting against God. But now, here is what is very interesting to me about this story. The Sanhedrin are not the only people that we're reading about this morning who have been fighting against God. In fact, the other main character was also just recently fighting against God. I'm talking about Peter. Now, we didn't cover this story as part of the sermon series, so I'm going to back up and, and, and fill it in. But just a few short months earlier, this happened between Peter and Jesus. In Matthew 16, verse 21... Everyone's ditching Jesus. Everyone's kind of uncomfortable with the things he's saying. And, and, and Jesus says to his disciples, no one knows who I am. Do you guys know who I am? And Peter, in probably the only time in the entire Gospels that he gets the answer right, says, well, you're, you're Jesus. You're the Son of God, our Lord and Savior. Where else are we going to go? Right? It's amazing. It's, it's this wonderful moment where, where Peter finally gets the answer right. Uh, that's what happens in the verses leading up. Verse 21, though, Immediately following uh, Peter getting, you know, an A++ on, on the test, is verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to then explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And this is always a troubling text because it feels a little harsh. It feels like Jesus is maybe being a little strict on the right answer. I mean, I mean Peter just figured out that you're the Lord, and now uh, he, two sentences later you're calling him Satan. Doesn't that seem like a bit of an overreaction? And, and here's why it's not. Because what was Peter denying? What was he saying wasn't going to happen? Anyone? Jesus' death and, and, and what leads up to the death? No, 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 the crucifixion after the death. Before the death, 
suffering. Verse 21, I'm going to suffer many things and then be killed and raised again. And so Peter is not just, uh, it's easy to read this story and say, well, Peter's sticking up for his friend. He hates the thought of this guy, Jesus, that he loves so much being tortured and and, and suffering. Uh, But we have to put on our theological goggles and look at that and go, he's not protecting Jesus. He's denying God's plan. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, Peter, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. He's flat out saying, all right, we've got God versus man, and which side are you on, Peter? You're on man's side, and you are fighting against God. Pretty harsh. But we need to connect it to this morning's story, because what were the Sanhedrin doing that was making them fight against God? They denied the work of Jesus, I don't know if you noticed, you notice that the Sanhedrin doesn't say Jesus' name at any point in this story. They say, hey, we told you to stop preaching about that guy. Hey, that name you've been using, you've got to stop using it. They don't even want to say the name Jesus because it's so disruptive to them. So they deny the work of Jesus. They won't even speak his name in this story. And then they try to stop the proclamation of the word. They try to stop the apostles from preaching. Uh, and, and that's what the Sanhedrin are doing. They're fighting against God. And what is Peter doing in this story in Matthew 16? He's trying to deny the work of Jesus. He's trying to say, no, no, I don't want you to suffer. Because at least at this time in Matthew 16, he doesn't understand how God's plan works. And, and it should be shocking to all of us how quickly it was just a few short months, where we've got Peter going from, no, 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 I don't want you to suffer, I don't want anything. Peter going, oh, no, I don't know who Jesus is, you know, I, don't, I don't want any consequences or suffering from my actions, to here in Acts 4, where now Peter is embracing the suffering. It's pretty amazing. Uh, if you go back, go back to Acts 4, the story ends uh, in verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. This same Peter that tried to deny the suffering, the same Peter that didn't want suffering at the crucifixion day, is rejoicing in the suffering. And that is not a minor point. That's not just, oh, let's, uh, let, let's dive into minutia. Like, like that is central point because our God when he looked at you and me and everyone that's ever existed and said they're going to hell how am I going to save you and God could have sent Jesus in mighty power as a king as a ruler as a general of armies uh, throughout Jesus said I could have my angels we could end this thing in a moment and instead God said through the suffering and death of myself I will redeem humanity. Suffering is the means that God uses. We tend to treat suffering as a bug in the system. For God, it's a feature. For God, suffering is not just an unfortunate thing. It is the exact tool that he uses to save us. And so when Peter denies that suffering in Matthew 16, he's fighting against God. And when the Sanhedrin tries to stop Uh, The apostles are fighting against God, but unwillingly, they're helping God because what are they doing? They're increasing the suffering of the disciples. And throughout Scripture, when you read about suffering, it is clear that God does not consider suffering as something to be avoided. It's not actually a negative cosmically. It's a negative this way. We hate it. 
No fun. But for God, suffering is the way that he saved the world. Suffering, when you look at Romans 5 and other places, is the thing that, that produces maturity and character in us. Suffering leads to endurance, uh, which leads to, to perseverance, which leads to character, and people who have character have hope. Suffering is the thing that gets us to hope. In fact, throughout Scripture, if you wanted to kind of do the, the, the math equation, suffering leads to God's glory over and over again. Old Testament, New Testament. Suffering leads to God's glory. And so these apostles get it. These apostles know that this suffering is going to do nothing but lead to glory. And so that's a great thing. But they go even one step beyond that because there is a very important preposition in verse 41. And it's one that I have to confess to you. I read wrong for about 30 years. I read this verse wrong for a very, very long time because of this one preposition. It says that the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing, and here's the word, the key word, and you're like, okay, what? Because. The key word is because. They were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now let me help you understand how I misread it, misread it. I always took that because as in spite of. They rejoice in spite of the sufferings. The sufferings were terrible, but they know they got heaven waiting for them. They know Jesus is on their side. They know they're fighting with God. Uh, And so in spite of the sufferings, they rejoice. It's not what scripture says. You know, I mean, what, what's the common uh, you know, poster? You know, when, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. And that's wrong. That's, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says when life give you, gives you lemons, be like, woo, lemons. I like lemons. Do you see the difference? I mean, it's subtle, but it's important. You know, the Bible's not saying, oh, you can, make, you, you can, you can uh, salvage those lemons. You can, you can. No, no, the Bible's saying you rejoice because of the suffering. And, and that's a big deal. Because I can in my head say suffering is a good thing long term because God has said that suffering is how he saved me. I'm still not going to rejoice in it. I can say, uh, well, suffering is a good thing because it's going to build character in me which is going to lead to my hope. And, th- and that's good. I'm still not going to rejoice in it. Just like when your dad gives you the speech about building character, you know, you, you don't, you're not happy about the speech. You, you may grant that the old man has a point, but you're not loving it. And yet scripture is clear both in this story and throughout that they rejoiced because of the suffering. And I don't know about you folks, I can't get there with my head. I can come up with all the reasons God in his wisdom has said suffering's good for this, this, this. These are the reasons suffering's good. I can't make that connection to my heart to say, woo, suffering. I can't get there. And unfortunately, that's where the story leaves us. So if I wanted to, I, 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 could, I guess I could just say, hey, look, folks, I, I know it's hard, but Jesus rejoiced in his suffering. So, you know, go rejoice in your suffering. Let's go. You know, let's go ask for people to persecute us and let's be happy about it. And, and is that realistic at, at all? It's not, not for me. I mean, maybe some of you are masochists. You know, maybe you guys would be all for it. But, I, but for me, I can't make that connection. 
to be joyful about suffering, to rejoice that God said, no, no, you're going to suffer, and, and, and I, I designed it that way. What? God, the maker of the universe, sovereign over everything, you could have done anything you want, and you made it this way? And you say, you want me to suffer? And not only that, you want me to be happy about it? And as I wrestle with this text this week, I, I can't in good conscience just tell you, all right, folks, it's what it says. Go, be happy about suffering. I, I, I can't say it. The best I can do, the best I can do is try and give you a tiny bit of perspective and, and hope that just like that perspective is working on my heart, maybe it'll work on yours. And, and just like we can look at this story and with 2,000 years of perspective say, oh, yeah, they were totally fighting against God. God had the apostles back. The only reason we can do that is because we got the perspective, right? And so the only thing I can think of that, can, that gives me even a glimpse of the perspective of how God could possibly say be happy about the suffering, how God could possibly say rejoice because of the suffering, not in spite of it, and it's this picture, which for those of you who are parents, uh, I think probably most of you have had to go through this, and I've now had to go through it with three different kids. But it's the moment where you have to first take them to the doctor's office for a shot, right? Whether it's a vaccine, whether they need blood drawn for a blood test. Uh, and three different times with my kids, I've had to have my heart broken because you take them in. And this is a kid, they're a year old, year and a half old. You know, I don't know when your first experience might have been. And for a year, they've known nothing but love and safety and comfort from you. Because you haven't had to spank them yet. They, don't, they can't move, you know. So, so they, don't, they don't know that part of you. you know? but, I mean, so up to a year, all they know is that you, you feed them, you hug them, you sing to them, you love them. And when they, when they are hurt, you are the one they run to, right? When they bonk their head on the crib, you're the one that comforts them. And for the first time ever, you take them in to get this shot. And they're one. They don't get it. You can't say to a one-year-old, oh, trust me, this is going to make you healthier in the long run. You know, the, the doctor's there with, with a needle, and, and they see the needle. Before they even know what it does, they know what the needle does. And, and they see it, and they just start to scream. And what does the doctor do? The doctor looks at you, right? And the doctor says, Dad you got to hold him down. And so you're the one who has to grab your kid physically by the arms, pin them to the bed, and they're screaming, and they're looking at you with betrayal in their eyes. And, and you're going, I'm so sorry. I wish I could explain to you in a way that you would understand, but instead you just have to look them in the face as they scream and as they're poked and hurt and wounded, and you're doing it to them. And you can't give them perspective. You can't say, we'll talk about this when you're five. <laughs> All you can do is hold them while they scream in pain and while they look to you and wonder why you've betrayed them. But in that moment, you are the closest to them you've ever been. In that moment, you may be holding them down and inflicting the pain, but you are holding them. And you will not let them go and while they might feel the pain, there is joy in knowing that their father is not letting them go even while they hurt, even while they suffer. And maybe one day they'll get it, 
And maybe one day when we look at our sufferings, we'll go, oh, I see why that had to happen. I see why that job uh, had to dishonor me so badly. I see why that relationship had to go south and they betrayed me. I, I see it in hindsight now. And again, that won't help you rejoice. But what might possibly give you a glimpse is knowing that when you suffer for the name, he is holding you. And that you are not far from him. How could Peter rejoice? Because he knew he was closer to Jesus than he'd been since he died. And so he rejoices because the suffering means that he is loved and he is close. And his father in heaven will not let him go. And so I can't blithely this morning tell you be happy because you suffer. All I can do is give you one glimpse That while the rest of the world might be fighting against God, while even some of God's children are fighting against God and in rebellion, you, when you suffer, are in his arms. And if you can't take joy in the suffering, take joy in knowing that your father loves you and is holding you tight. Amen.